You're listening to Devils and Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priests. Warning. This podcast deals with incidents of child sexual abuse and the brutal murder of a 13-year-old boy. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 3, The Suspected Murderer, Part 3. Here are the first words in the original victim statement written by the young man we've been calling Mark Baxter. Quote, When we are born, we are innocent in the eyes of God. People sin and God forgives them. That is one of the wonderful things about him. There are some things that may seem like a sin, but are really not. For instance, being the victim of sexual assault may make a person think they've done something wrong, but in reality, they are innocent. I can remember when I was 15 years old, I had a good friend, and of all people, a priest. What a friend, one of the closest to God. He would take me places like the movies, restaurants, and shopping. Little did I know at the time, but his generosity would be used in such a way as to make me feel I owed him something. The final paragraph in Mark's 22-page, 5,000-word police statement is equally revealing. Quote, These incidents of sexual assault happened during a three-year period, 1987 until 1990, and I never told anybody about them until now. I am emotionally scarred, and it's hard for me to trust people. I hate myself for allowing him to abuse me, and I could no longer keep it to myself. So I told some of the details to my sister, and she told my parents. My greatest fear is that this sexual abuse has happened to other boys that father has been in contact with, and it's almost a certainty that he has abused my brother, who was only eight years old at the time. To my knowledge, father has taken other boys on vacation with him, including this past summer, to Arizona. State Trooper Susan Mossman was the lead investigator on the sexual assault complaint against Father Richard Levine. Assigned to the DA's office covering both Hampshire and Franklin counties, In the hilly northwest corner of Massachusetts, she'd never investigated a case against a priest before. First, she'd taken Mark's statement. Then Mossman interviewed Bill Baxter. Then she interviewed his daughter, Lori. And lastly, Jimmy, the youngest boy in the Baxter clan. The little fella confirmed everyone's worst fear. 
The priest had acted inappropriately with Jimmy the year before when he was eight years old and a brand new altar boy. According to Jimmy, Father Levine tickled and touched and rubbed his privates during and after bathing following fishing trips. Twice. Plus, the priest slept in the same bed with Jimmy on the half dozen nights the kids spent at the rectory before the community decided to distance themselves from Father Levine. Mossman was impressed by the Baxter family, and she appreciated their spiritual devotion and kind nature, especially considering the distressing topics under discussion. And Mark's attention to detail and his well-written statement were a real help to the investigation. So were the names of the two additional kids, who might have something to say about the priest. The first boy told the detective that he'd once spent the night at the St. Joe's rectory and slept in his underpants, but Father Levine didn't touch him. Another young man, 20 years old at the time of his conversation with Mossman, recounted how Father Levine befriended his family eight years before, and how the priest gave him wine and got him drunk and tried to molest him during a sleepover at the rectory. Now Mossman had more than enough probable cause to bust the priest. On October 17, 1991, three weeks after Mark first approached the DA's office, Mossman went to Greenfield District Court and filed a criminal complaint against Father Levine for two counts of rape against a child and one count of indecent assault and battery. The judge signed an arrest warrant and the state trooper went priest hunting. Trooper Mossman and her colleagues kept checking the St. Joe's rectory and the church and the priest A-frame in the woods, but neither Father Levine nor his car were located. The next day, Friday, October 18th, Trooper Mossman headed 45 miles south to Chicopee. Her hunch was right. Father Levine's vehicle was parked behind his parents' house. She began a surveillance operation and radioed the Chicopee police for backup. A couple detectives were sent to the scene to assist in the stakeout. At 4.20 p.m., Father Levine arrived. Before he reached the front door, the cops had him. They cuffed him, read him his Miranda rights, and stuffed him in the back seat of the cruiser. Then, as Trooper Mossman got behind the wheel and headed to the state police barracks, she informed the priest of the criminal allegations being made against him. Who? Father Levine asked. Who is saying this? Mark Baxter, for one, the cop said. That's absurd. Well, I personally found him to be a really believable kid. I have no idea why he would make this up. Probably because of his father. He's a bigot and a chauvinist. Well, I know you've been accused of this before. What do you think a judge and jury are going to say when they see there's more than one complaint made? Can I be honest with you? Can I trust you? I'd like to hear your side of the story, but remember, you have the right to remain silent. I want a lawyer, Father Levine said. Then the priest shut his trap and didn't say another word. At the state police station, Father Levine was turned over to Trooper William O'Connell, who searched, fingerprinted, and photographed the priest before putting him in a cell to be held overnight. 
Bail was set at $10,000. First thing Saturday morning, bail was posted and Father Levine was released into the custody of Bishop McGuire and William Flanagan, a diocesan lawyer. The priest quickly disappeared from public view. The local media got wind of the arrest. The initial coverage was scant, a brief mention of the priest and the charges. Then on Monday, the Springfield Union News published a follow-up with St. Joe's parishioners who expressed dismay. Their pastor was a fine man, they said, not a monster, not capable of the allegations, must be some mistake. Seasoned journalists in the Springfield newsrooms had a different reaction. They remember the never-published gossip from 19 years before. By Monday night, the real news broke. Channel 40, the local ABC affiliate, had the scoop. The arrested priest had been the prime suspect in the murder of Danny Croto. It didn't take long for reporters to find Bunny and Carl who spoke straight from the heart. They missed their freckle-faced son, who would have now been 32 years old. And they confirmed the rumor. Father Levine had been the only suspect. Carl Sr. didn't mince words when it came to the now former D.A. Matty Ryan. The D.A. was pals with former Bishop Weldon, Carl explained, and did whatever the bishop told them to do. That's why Father Levine was never charged. Carl also told reporters how the DA refused to pursue any sexual abuse charges, claiming they'd interfere with the murder investigation. Then a Chicopee police detective came forward and acknowledged that Father Levine had been the sole suspect. Official reaction was swift. The current DA, William Bennett, immediately reopened the investigation. I have offered Father Levine my assistance, and I support him in his plea of innocence, the current bishop, Joseph McGuire, announced on October 24, 1991, a week after the priest was arrested. Then the bishop said that, upon advice from church lawyers and civil authorities, there would be no further statement from the diocese. Quote, we will take whatever steps are necessary to see these issues are resolved through the judicial process and not in the media. Father Levine was spirited away to the Institute of Living a Hartford, Connecticut psychiatric hospital for a month-long evaluation. Then, he stayed at the A-frame in Ashfield, or, more frequently, laid low at the homes of various family members and friends. Meanwhile, the media attention resulted in many tips to the cops about earlier bad behavior by Father Levine, and Trooper Mossman followed up on each one. After a handful of interviews, it became obvious that the priest was a serial sexual predator that jibed with Mark Baxter's accusation. For over three decades, Father Levine had frequently befriended families with multiple sons of altar boy age. He'd lavished the boys with attention, 
hire them to do yard work, invite them to supper, but never when another priest was around. They'd watch TV, which often led to a sleepover at the rectory. Sleepovers meant several glasses of wine with dinner or vodka and juice. It also meant showers. Once the boys were clean, the priest always tried to get them to wear a long night shirt with nothing on beneath. This was followed by laying together on a bed and tickling and back rubs and leg massages. If a boy showed discomfort with the physical contact, the priest would back off or offer the child more booze. Time and time again, investigators heard similar stories. Only the year and locations differed. There were multiple allegations of abuse that occurred in the basement of Levine's parents' house. Most of the accusations, however, concerned incidents that took place at church rectories, St. Catharines and St. Mary's in Springfield, St. Francis in North Adams, St. Joe's in Shelburne Falls, St. John's in Coleraine, and St. Christopher's in Charlemont. These former altar boys, mostly now men, also told investigators of their shame and guilt and fear. After all, Father Levine was a man of the cloth whom they'd been raised to obey. The victims felt indebted to the priest because of his kindness and generosity, and they knew not to tell their parents because it was an honor to be close to the parish priest, and most parents wouldn't believe Father Levine was capable of such evil behavior. The rapid triple knock was the secret signal, and Manny immediately opened the front door. His good friend, Father Levine, barged right in, eager to avoid the possibility of being spotted on the porch despite his disguise, a wig, a hat, and dark sunglasses. Not that anyone was even watching. The neighborhood in the rural town of Hawley, 12 miles from St. Joe's, was sparsely populated. Still, the priest kept sneaking peeks through the Venetian blinds, checking to see if any cars were driving down the country road. Father Levine looked skinny, Manny thought, not as muscular as he had been. These days, Manny and his oldest sister Marie were among the few prisoners who saw a lot of the priest. Father Levine was often distraught and expressed his fears about prison. He knew that as a convicted child molester, he'd become an easy target for the tougher inmates. Manny hoped the priest ended up behind bars, but never said so. It was easier for Manny to pretend to support Father Levine than have to explain why he knew the priest was a liar. The young man didn't want to reveal how the priest had first molested him a couple years before during rectory sleepovers and camping trips. He felt deeply ashamed and guilty and was afraid of the priest's temper. So Manny just went along with the other St. Joe's parishioners supporting Father Levine and his claims of innocence. He helped run a yard sale to raise money for the priest's legal fees and attended various fundraisers and meetings organized to fight the criminal charges. 
You should come to my defense, Father Levine said, standing by the window and pointing at Manny. But knowing you, you'd probably make a mistake and say something stupid that would really get me in trouble. Manny sighed. It was hard to predict the priest's mood. He seemed more volatile and depressed with each visit, not at all like the upbeat and generous pastor who'd befriended him four years earlier, taking him on vacations like a week-long camping trip to Mount Washington and giving him gifts like a super-sweet stereo and a rowing machine. These days, the priest was more likely to insult Manny, mocking his wispy mustache and baby face, or taunting him about his thinning hair, predicting that the teen would soon be bald. Manny knew that being a bully made the priest feel better about himself. There was nothing the teenager could do but wait for the trial and, hopefully, a conviction. Then, finally, he might be able to forget about the son of a bitch. By early February 1992, Trooper Mossman had collected dozens and dozens of allegations against Father Levine but most of the alleged acts occurred beyond the statute of limitations, which, at the time, was five years from the date of the crime. However, the DA believed that the five most recent cases would be enough to convict Father Levine. Trooper Mossman was convinced that Father Levine was guilty of scores of crimes, enough to deserve life in prison. In addition to the dozens of statements and complaints now on file, the phones kept ringing with new allegations. The trooper had interviewed a mother and her 40-year-old son separately about an incident on a summer day 34 years earlier in 1958 at a Chicopee playground where the then 17-year-old Dickie Levine was employed as an attendant and had befriended the boy who was then six years old. One afternoon, the two took a walk to a small pond just beyond the ball fields. Dickie Levine asked the boy to lay down in the grass. He reached into the six-year-old's pants and began, as the victim described it, tickling the boy, and then had the child do the same to him. Later, at home, the boy told his parents what happened, and they freaked out. They knew Dickie. His dad worked with the youngster's mom over at Savage Arms, a local gun factory. So the mom called the Parks Department and filed a complaint. A pair of city officials soon appeared on her doorstep and listened to the details. Then they confronted Dickie Levine, who readily admitted to the accusation, but claimed he'd never done anything like that before. Dickie pleaded with them to keep his sin secret. Quote, if my mother finds out, it will kill her. The officials returned to the victim's house and told his mom that Dickie Levine had been fired so he wouldn't be working around kids at the park anymore. And that was that. Five years later, Richard Levine entered a seminary on the path to becoming ordained as a priest. And 30 years later, on February 14, 1992, 
a Franklin County grand jury indicted Father Levine on 10 counts of indecent assault and three counts of child rape. And that ceremony was called the Divine Intimacy of the Holy Seed. Levine's attorney, Max Stern, explained to the group of reporters gathered for a hastily called press conference in Northampton. It was February 25, 1992, and Father Levine had just appeared at his arraignment in Superior Court, entering a plea of not guilty to the litany of serious charges. The priest faced 10 years in prison for each of the 10 counts of indecent assault and life sentences for each of the three rape charges. The lawyer's message was clear. The victim were calling Mark Baxter, and his fellow accusers were cult members, and Mark's father, Bill, was the cult leader. Stern alleged that the victims were all lying on behalf of the cult. It's a witch hunt, Stern added, and Father Levine will be vindicated. Father Levine put a fresh piece of paper into the typewriter. This was a very important letter the most important he'd ever written. Bottom line, he needed help, meaning dollars. The accused priest didn't have the cash to pay Max Stern's legal fees, and the diocese wasn't offering any financial help. So he'd been forced to mortgage his A-frame. But that still wasn't enough money. His parents agreed to mortgage one of their properties to tide him over until the priest could find other resources. Father Levine couldn't stomach the idea of losing his private refuge. He decided it was time to tap into the wallets of the network of parishioners who believed in his innocence. Dear friend, he typed, Father Richard Levine is presently suffering the most painful experience of his life. Criminal accusations have left him crushed and deeply hurt. To defend his name, he has retained the services of a prominent Boston attorney. The process of a competent defense requires a great deal of time, labor, and money. A priest's salary is hardly sufficient to defray these costs. A defense fund has been established in order to help our friend, whose 25 years as a priest has touched our lives in many beautiful ways. The priest paused. He'd recently rented a post office box in the town of Westford, Massachusetts, near his sister's house, where he'd been staying, hiding from the media and angry victims. He planned to make 500 photocopies of the letter, and some pals volunteered to help stuff and address envelopes. Father Levine hoped to raise at least $200,000. Otherwise, he'd have to say goodbye to the A-frame and his parents' property. He sighed, time for the hard sell. Many of you have asked how you can help, he typed. Your prayers and financial gift will best express your support and enable all of us to share the defense cost, which may run six figures. As you consider your gift, please remember that in many ways, Father Levine's burden has become our cross as well, as it is our responsibility to help him carry it any amount in single or multiple gifts now and at any time in the next few months would show you care. May the Lord bless you for your generosity. The priest signed the letter, Friends of Richard Levine, 
and added the new P.O. Box mailing address. Then he muttered a short prayer, hoping the magic words would help the letter do the trick. Attorney Stern's first couple of motions were denied by Superior Court Judge John Moriarty, who refused the defense request to dismiss the charges and nixed a motion to move the trial to a lower court. However, Stern wasn't the only one working on behalf of Father Levine. 500 of Father Levine's supporters signed a, quote, friend of the court filing on April 20th, 1992. They requested Judge Moriarty consider a simpler trial schedule that would be fairer to the accused priest. Quote, we don't believe the average jury can perform the mental gymnastics to separate a mountain of evidence in five separate cases and separate it into five separate neat piles and not let one pile spill over onto the others. The judge agreed and split the criminal charges into five separate trials instead of a single trial with five victims. Then, in another major blow to the DA, citing the extensive media coverage, Judge Moriarty ordered a change of venue, shifting the trials to Newburyport, on the other side of the state, a city at the mouth of the mighty Merrimack, Judge Guy Volterra took his place in the courtroom and then looked at Father Levine's legal team. I understand there's been a change in the plea, the judge said, and a murmur rippled across the Newburyport courtroom. It was the morning of June 25th, 1992, and the past three days had been spent seating a jury of seven men and eight women, including three alternates. It had been a very tough jury selection process for all involved. Every single member of the jury pool admitted to previously hearing about the Levine case. Ultimately, the final 15 jurors swore they would be able to withhold judgment until all evidence was presented. Then the jury was sequestered at a local motel in order to avoid all media. And on this rainy Thursday morning, the first official day of Father Levine's trial, 33 of the pastor's supporters drove 130 miles across Massachusetts to the Essex County Superior Courthouse to show love and encouragement for their embattled hero. Since his arraignment in February, the priest had publicly denied all the charges on several occasions. For his friends and much of his flock, that was enough to convince them of his innocence. Many of his supporters had joined the priest for a pre-trial mass at the nearby Immaculate Conception Church and then tearfully escorted him to the courtroom. Most of them didn't know he was about to plead guilty. They expected Father Levine would be exonerated and soon return to the altar of St. Joe's. Thus, the courtroom was shocked when Judge Volterra announced the plea bargain. Instead of standing trial, the priest admitted guilt on two counts, molesting a child under 14 and molesting a child over 14. In exchange for the guilty plea, the state dropped the rest of the pending assault and child rape charges. Under the terms of the agreement, the priest would be sentenced to 18 months in prison with all but six months suspended. 
This outcome would send a message to other child-molesting priests, the DA thought, while saving the time and expense of a long series of trials and avoiding the costly appellate process. However, Judge Volterra pulled a fast one. He announced that there would be no jail time for Father Levine. Instead, he ordered the priest to spend seven months to a year at St. Luke's Institute, a Maryland asylum for priests with problems associated with sex, drugs, or alcohol. Father Levine was also ordered to stop serving as a priest, and the judge banned him from living in a house where any resident was under 16, nor could he work with anyone under 16 or socialize alone with anyone under 16. Father Levine was also sentenced to 10 years probation. Then, in another surprise move, the judge's ire shifted to the media and law enforcement. In a 10-minute tirade, he lambasted the coverage of the accusations against the priest. The story merited one column in the back of a newspaper, he insisted, or a 30-second report on local TV. Instead, the constant and sensationalistic coverage of the case made the price of justice expensive for the state while destroying the perfect career of Father Levine. Then, the judge declared that the priest's crime was relatively minor since he'd only pleaded guilty to touching the buttocks of two children. Then, Father Levine was given an opportunity to address the court. I am sorry for the harm I have caused, and I ask for their forgiveness, he said of the two victims. As far as the other people who have accused me, if I have harmed them in any way, by anything I have done, even if unintentionally, I ask for their forgiveness as well. The Levine legal team tried to encircle the now-convicted child molester, but the media quickly surrounded them on the steps. Reporters and cameramen hollered questions and tussled to get a good shot in a solid soundbite. Vultures, Max Stern shouted at the media scrum. You're nothing but vultures. Suddenly, using his trusty friend Manny as a shield against the chaos, Father Levine made a break for it. The priest sprinted towards Immaculate Conception Church as the media mob gave chase. Then the teenager abruptly turned and stepped into the path of their pursuers, slowing them enough to put distance between them and the fleeing priest. Huffing and puffing, Father Levine ran and didn't look back. He ducked around the corner of the church and disappeared into the parking lot. Responding to the news of the priest's surprise guilty plea, Springfield's newest bishop, John Marshall, issued a statement asking for prayers for the victims and their families, for Father Levine and his family, and for anyone negatively affected by what he called a tragedy. Two days later, the Springfield newspapers published another scoop. Despite its publicly announced policy of not paying for priest's defense teams, Reporters discovered the diocese had covered a portion of Levine's more than $200,000 debt to Attorney Stern. Diocesan officials declined to reveal the actual amount paid, 
although they did admit that Levine would still receive a $1,000 a month priestly stipend and free health insurance. A local priest told the Springfield newspaper that, quote, the news that church funds were being used to pay the legal fees of a priest who pleaded guilty to indecent assault on a child might not please parishioners. The same day, a brief interview with the now-convicted priest aired on a Amherst public radio station. Father Levine announced that he intended to write a book about his trials and tribulations. Very few people know who I am, Levine told the interviewer. They might know me from working with me, or my sermons, or the jokes I tell, but very few people know and understand me. I've got a lot to say, and it's hard for me not to be able to tell my side of the story. But for now, I have to stay quiet. I'm a very, very trusting person, and I know if I go to the press with my story at this point, I could create problems for my defense. Being too trusting has always been one of my problems. The next day, the priest checked into the St. Luke Institute hundreds of miles away from the scenes of his many, many crimes against children. Father Levine, of course, was the proverbial tip of the iceberg. The diocese had many other problem priests who'd committed serious sins, felonies actually, known to church insiders. Revelations about other child-molesting priests would further erode the faithful's trust in the church and the public's confidence that the diocese would take action against evildoers discovered in their ranks. The traditional diocesan tactics in such situations, denial, lies, cover-up, and the destruction of personnel files, wasn't going to work anymore. Neither would the common practice of transferring child molesting priests from parish to parish whenever difficulties arose. Action, or the appearance of action, was necessary in order to avoid any more courthouse spectacles like Father Levine running away from reporters. Bishop John Marshall convened a nine-member panel of Catholic civilians to review claims of sexual abuse and other sins allegedly committed by the priests. The clumsily named, quote, Commission to Investigate Improper Conduct of Diocesan Personnel, end quote, had no real power, though. It merely advised the bishop of their fact-finding, leaving Marshall to decide what punishment, if any, to hand down. Also, the Commission's work and recommendations were to remain totally confidential. Church officials insisted the secrecy was to protect the victims and the alleged accusers. The classified nature of the proceedings also kept the extent of the problem and the diocese's response to it away from public scrutiny. During its first year, the commission investigated complaints against five priests, including Father Levine. All five were found to be, quote, credibly accused, which is church speak for guilty. The toughest penalty dispensed by the bishop was forced retirement from the priesthood, along with such sentences as, quote, a lifetime of prayer and reflection. Priests forced to retire kept receiving pay and benefits, including housing and meals in most cases. 
no cops or DAs informed, no jail time, no sex offender registration, and even worse, rather than a sense of justice or closure, many victims and witnesses who bravely appeared before the commission were bitter about the experience. Complaints about the commission's victim-blaming and skeptical questioning were frequent, plus the commission's investigations and the bishop's final decision progressed at a snail's pace. Due to stall tactics employed by church lawyers and the commission's lengthy procedures, years often passed before a case was resolved. Can't wait to get out of here, and I can't wait to get together with you, Father Levine said into his private phone in his private room with television and maid service at St. Luke's, the Maryland Asylum for Sinning Priests. At least three times a week he'd been calling Manny, now 19 years old and depressed, living at his sister's house. I was thinking, we should go camping up to Mount Washington again, Father Levine said. That was so much fun. I have such fond memories of that trip. Manny sighed. He was so friggin' tired of the priest's phone calls. He had thought that after the trial, he wouldn't have to deal with Father Levine anymore. Boy, was he wrong. The bastard wouldn't leave him alone. The priest had unlimited telephone privileges, and Manny was sick of hearing about St. Luke's, which sounded more like a luxury spa than a psych ward. The food, the priest said, was delicious. Professional chefs staffed the kitchens at St. Luke's and prepared great feasts served by waiters. The psychiatric treatment consisted mostly of hours of talk therapy mixed with group chit-chat. It was extremely boring, the priest said, but he did have lots of time for reading and writing and phone calls. Do you miss me? Father Levine asked. No. Without another word, Manny hung up the phone. Feeling tears of relief and anger welling behind his eyes, Manny headed down to the basement. Maybe playing some Nintendo would help him escape this foul mood. Over the video game soundtrack, he still heard the telephone ringing and his sister answering. Of course the priest would call back. Marie opened the basement door. Manny, father's on the phone. I don't want to talk to him. I'm too busy. Busy? Huh, come on. Father wants to talk to you. No, I said no. Manny, what's the matter with you? Nothing. Something is going on, Marie said into the phone. We'll talk to you later, okay? Bye-bye. She started down the stairs. I don't understand what's gone into you. Why would you be so rude to father? He said you hung up on him. Manny didn't answer. He pretended to focus on the game. Listen, Marie said. You've been acting weird lately. Usually you're such a sweetheart and fun to be around. But lately, you've been moody and sometimes, I hate to say it, acting like a, a real jerk. She paused then spoke softly. Please tell me what's bothering you. I'd like to help. Her kindness opened the floodgates. Tears soaked Manny's cheeks as he began to sob. I thought, I thought I was going to get away from him, but he won't stop. I know he won't. And the closer he gets to getting out and coming back here, the worse I fear. Oh, honey, did he do something to you? Manny nodded. Now he was crying too hard to speak. It took several minutes for Marie to calm him down. And then, through his sniffles, he told her what happened on the camping trip and at St. Joe's Rectory, even after his arrest, the priest kept molesting him. Marie hugged her brother. 
That explained a lot, she thought. Just wait until that damn priest calls again. About six months after the plea bargain, in early January 1993, the DA sent a letter to Father Levine's lawyers. Since reopening the investigation into Danny Croto's murder, detectives had learned many more details about the child-molesting priest and his relationship with Danny and other boys, more than enough to cast suspicion on the priest and to take a fresh look at the remaining physical evidence in state police custody. In the 20 years since the murder, some of the evidence had gone missing. The plaster molds of the tire tracks, for example, couldn't be found, and, curiously, neither could the bloody stones that had been recovered near the tire tracks. Somehow they disappeared as well. One clue that did remain was a plastic drinking straw found at the scene. It had been splattered with blood, supposedly, when the killer dragged Danny to the edge of the Chicopee River and threw the boy's body into the 41-degree water. Modern forensic testing on the straw, the DA believed, might shed new light on the case. They knew Father Levine's blood type, B, matched the type on the straw. Now if they could prove with DNA testing that the blood was Father Levine's, then bingo, case closed. As a professional courtesy, the DA informed the priest lawyers that the blood-stained straw had been sent to the California laboratory of Dr. Edward Blake who was considered a world-renowned expert in the new field of forensic DNA analysis. The press conference held in a suite at the Holiday Inn in Springfield the morning of January 28, 1993, had been strategically timed by the plaintiff's lawyer, Michael Wiggins. That's plaintiffs, plural, as in 11 plaintiffs, aged 19 to 38, suing the Diocese of Springfield and Father Levine. Unbeknownst to everyone at the press conference, Father Levine had been released the day before and was already safely ensconced in his beloved A-frame, surrounded by devoted friends who, despite his guilty plea, still believed he was innocent. The hotel suite was packed with media from across New England. Standing in front of the snapping cameras and rolling video and tape recorders, Attorney Wiggins outlined the basic facts of the case. Their accounts shared many common details, such as Levine's obsession with cleanliness, the showers, and making the boys wear long nightshirts during sleepovers without underwear. The priest always wore the same type of nightshirt. He got the boys drunk and then showed them porn. He made them sleep in his bed and tried to tickle them and give them back rubs. Then the molestation would begin. Each of the men had filed complaints with detectives during the criminal investigation the year prior. The grand jury testimony of five of the plaintiffs had resulted in the 13 criminal counts the priest had been charged with the previous February. However, the bulk of these charges were subsequently dismissed as part of the plea deal. The six other victims' complaints concerned incidents that happened many years earlier and fell outside the statute of limitations so a civil lawsuit was their only recourse. Four of the alleged victims attended the press conference. 
They describe Father Levine as a master manipulator with a quick temper and a mean streak. They explained how their shame and guilt manifested in failed relationships, broken lives, and problems with booze, drugs, and crime. Actually, only three of the four told their full story. The fourth broke down when he started to recount an 18-month period of abuse. Reduced to tears, he was unable to continue. So Attorney Wiggins stepped in and took over, reading statements from four other plaintiffs who had moved out of state. Quote, when Father Richard Levine arrived, the altar boys felt that this new priest was very special, wrote one man, then a 36-year-old insurance agent living in California. He gave us extra attention, played with us, took us on excursions, and made us feel like he was one of us. He was someone we confided in about almost anything, and someone I trusted unconditionally. His older brother and fellow plaintiff also wrote a letter that was read aloud to reporters. Quote, it was not uncommon for parents to let him take their sons on overnight excursions. Everyone trusted him so much. In the years following the molestations, this victim began abusing drugs and alcohol and fighting and vandalizing property. I found that I couldn't trust anyone. I felt that I wasn't a good person. His statement also detailed an incident that happened in 1967 or 68 at a cottage in the Hampshire County town of Goshen, 30 miles north of Springfield. Five altar boys, including Danny Croto, were with Father Levine. They'd had a great weekend goofing off, drinking, swimming, and wrestling. Quote, at one point, I pushed Danny to the floor of the cabin, and Father Levine saw this and struck me in the face so hard it knocked me down. I was shocked and hurt and embarrassed and confused because I'd never seen him exhibit such behavior. He seemed enraged with me, and I was awakened in the middle of the night by Father Levine, who'd gotten into bed with me. He molested me that night. Reporters scribbled in notebooks, and the cameras rolled as the lawyer detailed other incidents of alleged abuse, as well as the damaging impact the priest had on his victims and their families and their friends and their faith. The plaintiffs used their real names during the press conference, exposing their private torturer to the world. They were determined to show that Father Levine was a devil, a monster, and molester, and probably a murderer. Journalists were quick with follow-up questions that revealed even more startling details about the victims. One was a cousin to Levine, and the two brothers who spent the weekend in Goshen with Danny had another connection to the murder case. Their uncle was the former DA, Maddie Ryan, who had refused to prosecute the priest for the altar boy's murder or charge him with child rape 20 years before, despite having several victims who filed formal complaints and were willing to testify. As soon as the press conference ended, reporters dashed to the bank of hotel payphones and began calling the former DA at his home for comment. Maddie Ryan wouldn't answer the questions and kept hanging up the phone. Years later, however, the former DA told the Boston Globe that he believed the priest was a murderer. He didn't have the evidence to prove it.
He doesn't want to see you anymore, Marie said into the phone. And to be honest, I don't want you coming around here either. What? Father Levine sounded incredulous. He'd been expecting to see Marie and Manny the day he was released. Now, a week later, they still hadn't gotten together, and he was taken aback by her declaration. Why? You know why. Manny told me what you did to him. Oh, my God, Father Levine said. I've been accused of everything else. Why not this? Marie abruptly said goodbye and hung up the phone. Neither she nor Manny would talk to or see the priest ever again. Perhaps now her brother could get back to normal. He intended to move south and live with their mother in Florida. Way down there, he hoped he could start his life over. March 1993 was a cold, dreary, and lousy month for the convicted child-molesting priest. First, Bishop Marshall decided to publicly declare that Father Levine was banned from working as a cleric in Springfield or any other Catholic diocese. Judge Volterra had ordered the same punishment the summer before, but coming from the bishop it sounded official and gave the appearance that the diocese was taking action. Luckily for Father Levine, church officials privately assured him the diocese would continue to pay his $1,000 a month stipend and the annual bill for his $8,000 health insurance plan. The money would continue until he got back on his feet and was able to support himself. The priest knew that wouldn't happen anytime soon. His name and reputation were tarnished, and his only real skill other than being a priest, was interior decoration, and no one was going to be eager to have him walking through their home picking out new colors for the playroom. Making matters worse, the DA had officially requested a blood sample from Father Levine. They wanted to compare his DNA with the test results on the blood-stained straw sent to the California lab. No way, his lawyers said. The priest didn't like how the cops were still sniffing around. He just wanted to be left alone and move on. Unbeknownst to him, a new cop was on his trail. State Trooper Tom Daly was now assigned to the case and getting very familiar with the priest's criminal history. He knew the original Danny Croto case file backwards and forwards and he'd practically memorized the dozens of statements and reports provided by Trooper Mossman and her team, and he'd begun conducting follow-up interviews on his own. Trooper Daly was out for blood, literally. It was May 10th, 1993, and Trooper Daly was typing up his notes while waiting for his phone to ring. He was expecting a call from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico, Virginia, from Special Agent Greg McCrary, who specialized in busting pedophiles. The missing evidence from Danny Croto's murder file was making Trooper Daly's job a hell of a lot harder. Daly's predecessor, the now-deceased Lieutenant James Fitzgibbon, had complained about the Chickabee cops' sloppiness, their failure to comply with even the most rudimentary evidence-collecting techniques that were standard in 1972. The state troopers weren't faultless either. A whole bunch of evidence disappeared while in state police custody. And the initial analysis of the evidence by the state crime lab 
was also sloppy and haphazard. Amateur compared to the modern forensic techniques of 1993. So the state trooper was literally grasping at straws, one straw in particular, and that was next to nothing. Still, the circumstantial evidence and the accusations kept making the case against Levine stronger. More victims came forward with stories of abuse by the priest. Additional civil lawsuits were filed, and more plaintiffs were added to existing lawsuits, providing lots of fresh testimony about the priest's evil ways. Two statements were especially revealing to Trooper Daly. The first, from one of former DA Maddie Ryan's nephews, detailed the weekend at the Goshen Cottage three or four years before the murder. Danny had been the butt of jokes and teasing from the other altar boys, and Father Levine joined in the taunting. Danny was angry, the witness remembered, and he threatened the priest several times. I'll tell, I'll tell, Danny had said. And according to the testimony, quote, this obviously had an effect on Levine. He began paying more attention to Danny and ordered us to stop the name-calling, end quote. And later that day, the priest had struck the witness because the boy had been too rough while wrestling with Danny. Another statement, this one from an altar boy who wasn't victimized by the priest, provided more potentially damning details about Father Levine's relationship with Danny. This witness and Danny often served as altar boys for funeral masses, which were usually held on weekday mornings during school hours. Father Levine would drive to their school, take the lads out of class, and bring them back to St. Catherine of Siena. Following the funeral mass, Father Levine gave the boys a full chalice of altar wine to drink. Danny really liked the wine, his old pal said, and would drink most of it. Then the priest would insist on watching the boys change, even helping them out of their cassocks. And he always gave them several sticks of gum to chew on the ride back to school to cover up the scent of the holy wine. Back in the day, they viewed Father Levine as a cool dude. Quote, he didn't act like a priest. He acted like a playboy very carefree and never serious outside of church. The boy described how the priest gave him and Danny copies of porn magazines to look at, which he kept stashed under the front seat of his 1964 red Ford Mustang. The statement went on to recount an incident a couple years prior to Danny's death. The neighborhood boys were playing street hockey. Father Levine, parked in a big black car halfway down the block, had been spying on them. Suddenly. Danny started crying and said he had to go. He ran down the street and climbed into the priest's car. To Trooper Daly, these statements demonstrated the complexity of the relationship between the priest and Danny. And this was yet another account of the priest's habit of feeding booze to boys, which Father Levine had vehemently denied during the original murder investigation. This much was clear. The priest wielded tremendous physical, emotional, and psychological power over Danny, and Danny had but one defense, threat of exposing Levine's terrible crimes. On the morning of September 2nd, 1993, Judge Moriarty began to read Trooper Daly's application for a search warrant. 
This one was a hell of a lot longer than the usual warrant request that came across the judge's desk. The judge was being asked to grant permission for troopers to go to Father Levine's A-frame and, using reasonable force if necessary, to physically bring the priest to a hospital where medical personnel could draw his blood. This blood would then be analyzed and compared with the drops of blood that had landed on a single straw more than two decades prior. The judge was no stranger to Father Levine's case. He'd personally ordered a change of venue the year before, shifting the priest's criminal trial to Newburyport, and he knew there would likely be novel and complex legal issues raised if he decided to issue the warrant. And Daly's affidavit was pretty convincing. Using the FBI terminology of the day, the trooper alleged that Father Levine was a, quote, preferential child molester. A monster preying on children on a regular basis, Father Levine had the ability to, quote, identify with boys. He knew how to talk to them, and most importantly, listen to them. Almost every victim statement portrayed Father Levine as a good friend who was generous, affectionate, and attentive to their needs. Quote, more of a buddy than a person of authority, one victim wrote. Levine was, quote, dynamic exciting, and fun to be around, unlike other priests. Trooper Daly explained another disturbing aspect of preferential child molesters like Levine. Because of his personality, he had no problem finding victims. Instead, molesters like him often find themselves struggling to get rid of victims as the child ages out of his preference zone. Quote, victim disclosure often occurs when the offender is attempting to terminate the relationship Trooper Daly wrote in his affidavit, the child molester is likely to use threats and physical violence to avoid identification and disclosure. And Danny, Daly theorized, had been on the verge of exposing the priest shortly before he was murdered. Judge Moriarty finished reading the long affidavit. Then he signed the search warrant. No, I refuse, Father Levine said. Leave me alone. You don't understand, said the state trooper. You have no choice. This warrant allows us to use reasonable force to bring you to the hospital. Well, I want to talk to my attorney first. But make it quick, the cop said, because we're bringing you to the hospital, even if you're kicking and screaming. The priest picked up the phone and dialed his lawyer's Boston office. The lawyer sent a fax to a judge requesting that the warrant be canceled. The request was promptly denied, so then the lawyer requested the drawn blood be kept in hospital custody instead of being given to the DA until an appeal of the warrant could be heard by a higher court. That the judge agreed to. Three vials of the priest's blood were placed in the freezer at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, and they remained there while a two-year legal tug-of-war held in secret took place in Judge Moriarty's chambers. The DA cited case law supporting the judge's decision to grant the search warrant for the blood. Father Levine's lawyers cited cases to argue the opposite. The one thing the DA and the priest attorney, Max Stern, agreed upon was that all the documents pertaining to the blood work and the rest of the current investigation of Levine should remain confidential, away from the prying eyes of the media. However, 
The news hounds at the Springfield newspapers got wind of the rumors about secret court proceedings and filed suit to fight the impoundment of the documents. That lawsuit wouldn't be resolved for over a decade. A month and a half after his blood was forcibly drawn, Father Levine was indicted by another Franklin County grand jury and was arraigned on November 16, 1993, on a charge of child rape, crimes that allegedly occurred in 1983 and 1984. Those court proceedings were just symbolic, though. The case was quickly dismissed because it fell outside the statute of limitations. Still, as 1993 came to a close, the priest's lawyers were defending him in at least nine different Massachusetts courtrooms, including a civil court in Hampshire County, where a judge declared Father Richard Levine to be destitute. That allowed his longtime lawyer to become court-appointed, which saved the priest a ton of cash. Being declared destitute also meant he lost his precious A-frame to the bank. For the next couple of years, the priest stayed with friends and relatives, eventually settling in with his mother and father at their house in Chicopee. He wasn't a financial burden on his aging parents, though. The $1,000 stipend from the diocese, the fruit of God knows how many checks and bills dropped into collection baskets by faithful Western Massachusetts Catholics, that stipend kept arriving every month. On January 28, 1994, the Springfield Union News published another shocking scoop. The Diocese of Springfield agreed to pay $1.4 million to 17 alleged victims of Father Levine. These were the 11 who had come forward the previous January, plus another half dozen who signed on to the suit in recent months. Details were scarce. The victims were forced to sign non-disclosures and church officials weren't talking. According to a source, the church hoped its insurance would cover most of the costs. We're going to leave the Levine story for now. We'll return to this evildoer in Episode 9 as part of the story about the downfall of the bishop who'd been protecting Levine, a bishop who was also a child-molesting priest. And then, in Episode 11, I knock on his door at the Chicopee home he inherited from his parents to see what his current life is like. Sadly, this sociopath has outlived most of the characters in the story. The pain and suffering created by this monster are impossible to quantify. The over 60 on-the-record church settlements involving Levine are likely a fraction of the actual total. How many victims live silently in the darkness created by the abuse or are compelled to self-medicate to get through the day or the night or use fury as a way to cope with their victimhood? What about those who didn't make it? The suicides who drank or drugged or brawled themselves to death? What about the hangings and pill overdoses? Or the single car crashes into trees and telephone poles on lonely and desperate nights? What about the trickle-down effect? The damage done to the parents, siblings, spouses, and children 
of the abused altar boys, unable to understand or comfort their loved ones who suffer alone and are overwhelmed by sorrow, guilt, and anger. And what about the ones who got caught in the vicious cycle? How many of Levine's victims went on to abuse others, creating new victims and exponentially expanding the suffering? How many are doomed to a lifetime as both victim and perpetrator? The real numbers will never be known. For too many of them, there is no heavenly comfort, only the torments of hell. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Thanks to Chris Busby of MainerNews.com and Brian Fitzgerald for editorial assistance. Thanks to Dave Gutter for the theme song. Thanks to my sweet wife, Sweetgrass, for the musical interludes. Thanks to Tommy Shea, Brian Melly, Bill Zajac, and Stephanie Barry, all reporters, at one time or another, at the Springfield Republican. Thanks to them for their coverage of the child-molesting priests of Springfield. And thank you for listening. Be sure to visit devilsanddirtbags.com for show notes, top-secret memos, and to learn about my books, my other journalism, and movie, or to send me an email next time on Devils and Dirtbags. Compared to the sordid tales of suspected murderer Richard Levine, the story of Father Charles Sullivan almost seems like a comedy. An angry drunkard, he was punished for his drunkenness, his whoremongering, and for threatening to shoot the bishop, and he died alone, in disgrace, abandoned by the church.